0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church sermon podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Stuff I have, and I just kind of had a word brewing in me. Uh, I think I'm going to get to my message. I don't think this will take long. I don't think I'm going I'm to stray very much here, I just, but I had it brewing in me during praise and worship. Uh, and I, I, I think this is a, this is for an individual and you don't have to identify yourself. You can, it's nothing embarrassing, uh, but just had a real strong sense that there's somebody here and it could be more than one person. And, and, and I know it's, it's, uh, the kind of thing that's, uh, I guess common enough that you could think, well, yeah, that applies to me, but uh, this really applies to somebody in here. Uh, so listen, you, you, uh, you Dragged yourself here tonight, even though there is a responsibility weighing on you, and you even considered, in a sense, well, would it be irresponsible to go to church tonight? I really need to take care of this. I don't know if this is a looming, if this is a deadline, if this is a job. I don't know if it's just a matter of trying to figure something out. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's if it's a physical need that maybe you're thinking i just need to i need to get better or i need to meet this financial need whatever it is it's a burden and a deep sense of responsibility and the and again the thing you are wrestling with is almost feeling like you're copping out or playing hooky by being at church like you're dodging the responsibility and the word of the lord to you is (laughs) you are not being irresponsible Give me this time and give me that responsibility. Trust me, this is going to work out. I'm going to work it out. I'm going to work it out through you. I'm going to give you the wisdom. I'm going to give you the strength. I'm going to give you the resources to get through this. You are making the right choice by honoring me with this time and with this attention. All right? Now receive that. And if that's you, And you can wave at me, or you can just tell me after church, hey, yeah, that was me, spoke to me. Uh, But I believe it was somebody, and I do kind of want to hear from you, all right? And if you want to testify about what that is, I'll certainly give you the opportunity to do that. But that was really stirring on the inside of me. And uh, and I was really uh, moved by some of the things that were coming forth uh, through the Word uh, that God brought forth through Doug and uh, the things that he was speaking through Pastor Mike, that, man, we're in an hour now. Uh, this is this church what's our vision we live the gospel we preach the gospel and uh, we've got to move more quickly get and this is listen part of living the gospel and part of the reason we are here had this uh this uh image going through my mind this has been a couple weeks ago i'll be driving around and something will hit me and i'll pull out my phone and and leave a little voice recording 30 seconds long just to to remind myself to think about it and uh and i was thinking about this old uh, tune uh, I'm not a huge Southern Gospel fan, but I'm a big Imperials fan, and they had a, a old Imperials live album that that I used to play the heck out of, and they had some old old some of their older stuff on there. And maybe anybody remember the song uh, "Good Old Gospel Ship"? I'm gonna take a trip on that good old gospel ship. Yes, I am. And I'm thinking, okay, good old gospel ship. You know, it's just kind of a funny picture but it's a moving you know it's kind of what gets get you excited and I'm like what kind of ship are we you know are we a uh, are we a uh a fishing vessel we are aren't we uh he's made us fishers of men we're out there and we are catching are we are we a rescue vessel yeah we are we're kind of the coast guard uh are we a hospital ship yeah we are and are we a battleship yeah, we are, we're all those things, aren't we? Those are all great images. We are in, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And so the gospel ship is a battleship, but we are also engaged in healing and binding up the brokenhearted and helping those of us in, in our midst who need to get back on their feet in every way. Okay. But our goal, we've got to move as quickly as we can from being that patient to being somebody who's actively involved in the fishing, in the rescue, and in the battle. Right? It's not just, ah, oh, my goal is to be okay. If your goal is to be okay for a purpose right we want to be one of those units that's got to constantly be resupplied because we are expending our ammunition and we are going through the resources that god has given us not hoarding them not just resting on them but uh, using those weapons and again constantly needing a fresh supply of power fresh supply of ammunition a fresh supply of all the resources that god has promised because we are constantly doing the things he's called us to do there's my word and now i can preach my sermon okay I, uh, and if I hustle, we might, no, we're not, we're not, we're not, never mind. I was going to say, I might, there might be a, a, an extra thing we can get into tonight, but I'll be, uh, we'll be blessed if we can get through the, the message I had. Um, let's first look at this passage. You can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. And once again, I don't know what got me reading in this particular spot, but it's a familiar passage. Even more so because we were just, we, we were in the gospels not too long ago as a church, uh, on Sunday mornings. And, uh, but this, there's one tiny little piece of this that I love it when this happens. I'll be reading it. I'm like, yep, 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 read it, read it, read it. I'm like, oh, one little phrase jumps off the page at me. Now listen to this. This is in Luke chapter 20. We'll begin in verse 27. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him. Now remember the Sadducees. We talked about in our intro to the New Testament, we talked about the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were kind of the elite. They were the enlightened ones. They were the ones, the Sanhedrin was, was pretty much made up of the Sadducees. They were the, the ruling power of the Pharisees. I guess uh, today the Sadducees would be the progressive liberal uh, believers and, and the Pharisees would be the fundamentalists, Okay uh and and uh and they both had their problems they both had their issues obviously but the sadducees uh just considered themselves and i don't know i don't know what drove their train i'm not sure why they were so hung up on not believing in the resurrection why they wouldn't want to believe in the resurrection but they didn't okay and uh they were certainly and the pharisees were too by the way they they were certainly more interested in preserving and defending what they already believed than learning anything new so anyway There we go. Some of the Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he dies without children, then his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as wife, and he died childless. Then the third took her, and in like manner the seven also. And they left no children and died. And last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. Now, this is a pretty good question. They think they have got Jesus nailed on this. They think they are going to prove to Jesus that there is no resurrection because it doesn't make sense. Look, we believe the law. You believe the law. Moses clearly laid this out. Okay, if a man dies, uh, childless, his brother's supposed to. And, and so this is a hypothetical. I'm sure they're not talking about a real woman. I guess they could have. But they're like, this. something like this surely has happened. But this woman was married legitimately seven times. Has no, the issue is not why were there no children. The issue is since she was really married to seven different guys, and since the resurrection is real, who's she going to be married to in heaven, huh? So Jesus answers their question. Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised, when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. this was a tremendous answer because, number one, he answers their challenge head-on and explains, you're asking the wrong question. You're thinking that human relationships just continue in heaven as they were down here. I'm telling you, it's a different age. It's a different environment. Marriage is, is a an institution for man on earth, it's different in heaven. And when he says we're equal to the angels, you might be puzzled and think, well, I thought we were a little higher than the angels. This is He's talking about in terms of nature, the heavenly nature, the spiritual nature. It's just a different world, a different environment, different rules. But then he cuts, instead of just answering the question, well, she's going to be nobody's wife because there's no marriage in heaven. He doesn't stop there. He says, look, God has spoken this, uh, even Moses, who you're quoting, clearly demonstrates that there's an afterlife because Moses identifies him as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Are you telling me that God is the God of the dead? We all know he's the God of the living. Now, we don't just think that's a good answer. Look what they said in verse 39. Then some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you've spoken well. That's a good answer. But, After that, they dared not question him anymore. And I read that passage in the past. I'm like, wow, he really showed them, and they walked away. I read that today, and I thought, why not? They asked a good question. He gave them a better answer. And instead of saying, and what they did say was, (laughs) good answer. What I would do, what I hope I would do is, that was a good answer. Hey, i got a couple more questions for you. You're a man with good answers. Answer me this one. Maybe I've got some other, okay, but, but what about this? Maybe I'd challenge further. They were, they knew they'd been whipped, and they didn't want to give him the opportunity to speak that kind of truth in their life again. Isn't that sad? Have we ever seen people like that? We see it all the time, don't we? We see it all the time. It wasn't the answer they wanted, so they didn't want any more answers from him. There's a, uh, I've told this story before, and I, I, boy, you know, you, you, you preach a hundred sermons a year and you run out of stories, all right? I know there's more stories back there, but I, I've shared this with you, but again, I just heard Swindoll say this the other day. The nice thing about telling a story you've told a hundred times is there's always one person who hadn't heard it. And I've shared this, but bear with me. The, these Mormon kids used to come over to our house in Farmer City and, uh, Nice, nice guys, you know, young, you know, fresh out of, I don't know if they are fresh out of high school, fresh out of college. But, you know, they'd come over and they'd play basketball in, the, in our driveway a little bit and then ask if they could come in and talk to us. And, and they came over several times and uh, uh, got to talking with them. And they showed a little video. We let them. And uh, I asked them some questions. or they're asking me some questions. Would you, you know, let me, can I read to you a passage out of the Book of Mormon? Sure. And so they read a passage and they say, would you agree with that? And I would, I would answer back and say, I do agree with that. But I agree with that because the same thing is in Ephesians chapter 4 or whatever. And I tried to tell him, look, we both claim to believe the Bible. Why don't we talk about the Bible? This is common ground. I, I really don't accept the Book of Mormon. Yeah, but don't you see it's just, it's another testament, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I said, yeah, but here's what's getting me. I said, listen, you know, we're friendly. We get along. L- let me cut to the chase here because... You're playing it safe. You're throwing things at me that you know I'm going to agree with. And I think, frankly, you're trying to make me think that's all there is to Mormonism. But I know it's not. And you know it's not. I said, now let me make this clear. And I want you to understand. I, I really did want, I, I want this to be clear to you as well. I'm not ma- I said, I'm going to ask you a question, but you need to understand I'm not making fun of you. I'm not asking you this question because I think it's a silly, ridiculous belief since we both believe the bible i'm telling them this we both believe things that the world thinks is silly and ridiculous we both believe god created this world we both believe jesus was raised from the dead they have a little bit different view of that but never mind they believe we believe things that the world scoffs at us for right and they said that's absolutely right i said okay so i'm not scoffing i don't believe what i think you believe about this but i'm just asking so i asked them Do you believe, and I knew they did, that if you remain a good, committed, faithful Mormon your whole life, and I didn't invent this argument, by the way. I heard it from somebody else. I said, do you believe that, you know, you get married in the temple, you have kids, you do all this stuff, you wear your special underwear your whole life, whatever it is, that's true, uh, that one day you will be the God of your own planet. And they said, yeah, we do. I said, okay. Again, I'm not making fun of you. But here's my question. Who lives on that planet? Because that's what they believe. They, they, they say, as, as, as God is, we will be uh, uh, as, as we are God once was. That God was a man, he married, and, and we are his children, his offspring, his literal offspring. And one day we will uh, attain godhood and we will, have, we will populate worlds with our own children. Everybody gets their own planet, and we are on Jehovah's planet. So I said, if that's true, who, le- who gets to live on your planet? He says, well, our children and their children and their children and their children. I said, makes sense, except if your children grow up to be good, faithful Mormons, don't they get their own planets? Yeah? Then who lives on your planet? Nobody's ever asked me that before. I'm asking you. It's a good question. It's a good question. Kind of sounded like it's a good answer. You've answered well. After that, they didn't come back. And I wasn't trying to scare them away. I wasn't. I wanted to talk about this. But you see, this is, it's so entrenched. It's like, whoa, what the things you are answering me with threaten what I believe. They are opposed to what I've already decided I know. So I'm not coming back for more. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses, to their credit, would keep coming back for more, Uh, but that's because, I say to their credit, uh, almost tongue-in-cheek, because they literally get credit for the number of hours they spend uh, sharing, and uh, whether they spend two hours knocking on doors or two hours sitting in your living room, they get credit for the time, so, man, they'll sit there and take a beating uh, if you want to administer one, theological beating. had some, and I've told you stories about my conversations with them as well. Uh, and, and you know what? I didn't always have the answers. I didn't always have the, the great little questions like that. But I was never, I was never all, likewise, I was never threatened with what they believed either. Uh, we'll tell more stories about that some other time, not tonight. There's a phrase out there uh, that you may have heard, uh, specifically in reference to the argument or the discussion uh, on homosexuality and the Christian view of homosexuality, or the biblical view of homosexuality. And the phrase is this, clobber passage. Have you ever heard that? The clobber passages. And, and this is a sort of a derogative term uh, used by people who say, well, there are people who they want to pull out one or two verses of the Bible and clobber people with them. And so there are, there are seminars and uh, conferences dedicated to dealing with the clobber passages. The ones that, to you and me, uh, to me anyway, clearly speak against it. Uh, these, these are what they would call clobber passages. And so they find ways of showing or demonstrating or figuring out ways to make that verse say something else. All right? and, we'll, and that's not what this message is about. I'm, just, I'm telling you what the phrase means and, and what, what its common use is. Uh, and uh, I had a conversation with a, with a guy just uh, this morning. And we were talking about this, uh, this issue in, a, in another context. And he said, you know what a clobber passage is? A clobber passage is any verse of the Bible that tells you you can't do what you want to do. In First, Timothy, in First Timothy, where it says uh, an elder must be the husband of one wife, that's a clobber passage for anybody that wants to be a polygamist. It's true. We come up against clobber passages when we come up against any verse that clobbers something in our life or clobbers a desire of ours and we can either submit to it and change or we can rebel we can dig in our heels we can run away answer and ask him no more questions right i'm getting ahead of myself let me look at something else this is uh, this goes back many months now it's one of my favorite passages in the old testament definitely worth looking at uh, we have something to return to time and time again i think there's such a powerful lesson here in habakkuk Chapter one, the first chapter uh, is a brief conversation between the prophet and and the Lord. But the prophet's question, and that fact, that's the heading of uh, beginning in verse two. The prophet's question. Let me just read these just the first few verses here. Uh, Habakkuk chapter one, beginning in verse two. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. He is looking. He sees the world going to hell around him. And he's like, I'm crying out. I'm trying to get your attention. Call your attention to this stuff, Lord God. And you are ignoring me. Violence and uh, uh, injustice are winning the day. And then God answers and said, look, you guys brought this on yourself, and I'm raising up an enemy to bring judgment. And then Habakkuk complains about that, but he says, yeah, but your people will never be defeated. You You can't go counter to the promises you've made. This is wrong. This whole concept is unjust. How can you, the God of righteousness and our God, raise up an enemy against us. This is not right. He is making his complaint logically, passionately, uh, and desperately. But then look at chapter 2, verse 1. He makes his case, and then he says this, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I shall answer when I am corrected. This is one of the most beautiful examples of humility in the entire Bible. This is Habakkuk speaking from his gut, speaking from his heart, speaking from his head, laying out the world to God exactly as he sees it, and yet knowing that because God is God, he is right. And if if he is right, if God is right... And what I feel, and what I'm expressing is opposite to God. That means I am wrong. So he's being honest. God, this is how I see it. And I can't see it any other way, but I'm listening. So he says, I'm going to see. I'm I'm interested in seeing two things. One, what's God going to say to me? And two, how am I going to respond when he shows me I'm wrong? He is going to correct me. How am I going to respond to that correction? Along that line, Psalm 73. We... We have time, I think. I'll read quickly, but I want to read the whole thing. Psalm of Asaph, truly, beginning in verse 1, "...truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm." They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here, and waters of a cup are drained by them. And they say, How does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly, who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocence, for all day long I have been plagued, and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, now here he is. He's recognizing something. He's Again, he's pouring out his complaint. He's made these observations. I'm looking around, and it's not just that I'm seeing evil. He knows there's always been evil. There's always been sin. But he's like, the wicked are prospering. Now, the Lord tells me that there are curses in the earth. He put sickness on the Egyptians, but he promised he'd never put them on me. Uh, He's promised to make sure that my vat's always full, blessed going in, blessed going out. Uh, i'll be the head and not the tail and yet i'm looking around and it looks like the people who are enjoying those blessings are the people who are scoffing who are thumbing their nose at god he says this is what i see and then look what he says here if i had uh if i had said i will speak thus behold i would have been untrue to the generation of your children When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. In other words, I caught myself before I went blabbing this complaint. He's taken his complaint to God in this psalm rather than turning the hearts of the children of Israel against God. He knew he would have sinned had he done that. It was too painful for me, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to the Lord. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Now, there's a whole, you could do a mini-series who knows, I may someday, on this psalm, breaking it down and talking about how there still is a difference. in I think Asaph has a great perspective on this thing. But consider the time he lives in. This is still Old Testament. He's still under the law. The Holy Spirit has not been poured out on all flesh. All right. Uh, but he still has this perspective. Look, this, and what he essentially, I guess the Scott Mills version of this, the simple version is, is I still don't understand all this, but I know in the end, I'm way better off than the wicked even if I never see them fall with my own eyes, I know that there's way more to life than this life. Now, I think Asaph is right. God's promises should apply to this life too. But in the grand scheme of things, we are way, way, way better off in Asaph's shoes than in the, the shoes of the wicked that he sees prospering. All right? Now, And I think the key there is when he talks about things like forever and everlasting, and where his ultimate hope is. All right. Now, if uh, you would quickly turn to uh, hmm, uh, go to Second Peter chapter one, beginning in verse sixteen, it says, "For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty." For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. You know what he's talking about here, right? He's talking about the transfiguration. He says, look, this isn't just, this things I'm sharing with you in my sermons, in my preaching, and in my previous letter, and in the letter I'm writing now, these are not just things we came up with. These are not things that we heard from somebody else. We were there on the mountain, Peter saying, James, John, and I were there with Jesus on top of this mountain. We saw this. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. Not that we wouldn't have believed it had we heard it from a trusted source, but we were there. We saw this transfiguration with our own eyes, and we heard with our own ears this voice from heaven, heaven, God saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So as if, and you would think, wow, that's the ultimate confirmation Of what somebody believes but what does he say next and so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts verse 19 do you have that in uh new american standard so we have the prophetic word made more sure the prophetic word made more sure What's he talking about? He's saying this experience we had on the mountain, what we saw with our eyes and heard with our ears, it was glorious. But you know what we have that's even better? The word. The prophetic word made more sure. Which you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He's saying the, the prophetic writings of Scripture are more trustworthy even to Peter than Peter's own experience. And this is what we have. Where am I going with this? If we've got problems, and if you don't, I just want to sit in your presence because you probably have all the answers. If there are things that confuse you about life, and man, oh man, what a day to be talking about this. Where is God when, what, 19, 17, how many, 17 students gunned down at school and the world cries out every time, where's God? Where is God when, so where was God on 9-11? How can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow the innocent to suffer like that? And it's not just suffering that we wrestle with, and it's not just evil that we wrestle with. There are some very ideas that people have questions about and that we have questions about. Why am I going through this? Why do I have to put up? And you name it. If God is a God of abundance, why am I still in debt? If God is a God of healing, why am I still sore? Why am I still sick? Uh, it's all the things, that the, the, whether we are being literally attacked by the enemy or whether we are just slugging it out in life, dealing with our flesh and everybody else's flesh, these are things that have to, if you are a thinking Christian at all, you have to wonder from time to time what we are supposed to be overcomers. We're supposed to be victories. Why am I not experiencing it? And I'm telling you the answer. When we go to God, this is where he wants to answer us in his word. And I am firmly convinced that the vast majority of people who really wrestle with the concept, with the idea of God and and. uh Why life is the way it is, etc., are people who are not spending time in the Word. They are not seeking the answers. And the problem is many people, including many so called Christians, don't want to stumble across or be confronted with anything in the Word of God, let alone from anybody else, that's going to clobber them. They are not willing to be taught or corrected. What do we want to hear? What we want to hear is, uh, God loves you just the way you are. Now, is that true? It is absolutely true. It is absolutely true. How many of you who are parents, when your baby was born, when your babies were born, looked at them and said, I would love you if you could just talk, if you could just walk, if you could just work, if you could just... Do anything except lay there and cry. Anybody? How many of you looked at that baby and said, I love you because you're my baby? I love you just the way you are. Now, those of you with older children, how many of you would be a little concerned if your five year old, your 10 year old, your 15 year old, your 20 or 30 year old still looked and acted and walked and communicated like a newborn? Would you be concerned? Has something gone wrong there? Still love him, right? Right? This is what it's about. God is our father. And he loves us. Even before we uh, become his children, he loves us. He loves us when when we're in the world. He loves us into the kingdom, but we are his children. And this this is a matter of training and teaching and correcting. You know this. Everybody knows this, that, that probably 90% of parenting is correcting, right? Or is, it just that, is that just true in my house? And you've heard this before too. I didn't make this up. God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay that way. I love my babies. I love my children just the way they are, but I love them way too much to let them stay that way. When we get into the epistles especially, you will see that an awful large percentage of what uh, Paul writes and what Peter writes, uh, what James writes, is correction. It's teaching. It's training. Training what? Training people to think right, to act right, to change. We're being formed into an image here, not to save us, but because he has saved us, right? Right? You see, it's his love, it's because he loves us that he's motivated to remake us, to reform us. And when he does that, what's he doing? He's elevating us. What's he forming us into? He's forming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And any, oh boy, we really got to hustle. Praise the Lord's team, you can come me. Slowly making your way up here. Any training that's worth having, and I'm thinking even in terms of basic training uh, and how much of this is just driving out just old habits. I, I t- I've talked to Chris and I know things have changed. Uh, you, you told me a lot, lot less emphasis on like a drill and ceremony and that sort of thing, because we're on a war footing now. Uh, but I've told you before about how, you know, little things don't stand around with your hands in your pockets. And I couldn't put my hands in my pockets for years, uh, after just being in the guard. And, uh, but training all these habits, but you get things that seemed hard, that seemed unnatural at first, because of why? They weren't a part of me. But by the end of nine weeks, eight, nine weeks of basic training, those things were a part of me. Advanced training, AIT, gets a little more intense. And then any specialized training you go through, what are they doing? They're shaping you into something that you weren't before. And we're just talking actions and behaviors. The calling with which you and I are called as ministers of God, and that's everybody, Right? Great commission. That calling is such a high calling. We are ambassadors of the kingdom. And that demands transformation. We are not, uh, we are not preaching. We shouldn't be just preaching salvation from hell. We're preaching salvation from sin. We're talking, we want to be uh, sharing with people how God wants to deliver them, transform them into manifest sons and daughters of God. And if we're going to be effective in that message, we have to demonstrate that. But if we're going to demonstrate that, we have to be willing to recognize when we come across a scripture that says, you know what, this is wrong. And we look at that and say, but I'm doing that. Culture, Christian, Western Christian culture wants us to look at that and say, but God loves you anyway. It ain't about what you do. And you know what? God does love you anyway, but it matters. It matters. Maybe not technically for your salvation, but it matters for the world because we are preaching a transformation that we need to be demonstrating. Right? Stand up with me and let me ask you a question. Speaking of preaching, and sharing uh, how many of you prayed this week, or have prayed in the last week for the people that we wrote down last week? Are you carrying that list around, whether it 's one person, three people, fifty people, or a hundred? Uh, Sherry Gooden sent me a picture of a list. She wrote down two hundred people, uh, two hundred famous people, just just as an exercise. These are people that, that, that came, came to mind, and uh, I, was, I was pretty impressed, and, and her handwriting was perfect. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, I do want you to carry that list around of people you know or people who God lays on your heart, and let's stick with that, not for days or weeks, but for years. Let's, let's take, uh, as an example, guys like Moody who did that and prayed 100 people into the kingdom, right? It's important, uh, but wow, 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 we have got to be prepared to be the laborers that God sends into the harvest, We've got to be prepared with answers when people ask. And we've got to be skilled enough in this to direct people to where the answers are. And that's a lifetime process. Don't neglect it, church. Amen? Uh, Looking at a church full of people tonight who I believe are... There you are. Who I believe are saved. Uh, You've experienced uh, at least the first step in this transforming power. Uh, But if you're not, if you've never never given your life to Christ, never acknowledged the price he paid for you, do that while we sing this song, all right? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. If you need to make that decision, you need to get saved, come up here. Otherwise, let's just make this, take these few minutes while we sing to recommit ourselves to this cause, to this mission, to this God who loves us so much and desires that we partake in this mission. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.